Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. Join Andy Schneider, National Spokesperson for the USDA APHIS Avian Health Program, Editor-in-Chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine, and author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, Chicken Fact or Chicken Poop, and Zero Waste Chicken Keeping, as he welcomes top poultry veterinarians, poultry scientists, and poultry nutritionists to discuss the hot topics in the poultry world today and provide science-based, fact-based, study-based information to help you raise the healthiest poultry possible. And now, here's your host, Andy Schneider. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, uh, The topic today is Identifying Problems with Incubation and Hatching. And today my guest uh, is poultry research specialist Becca um, Waisaki. And we're going to be talking all about, uh, again, incubation and and hatching and really problem solving um, many, many times. And and you see this a lot out there in social media. Uh, People get really frustrated. You know, first off, they're a little intimidated when they they take that step and go down the road of incubation uh, and hatching uh, because they're just all of a sudden surrounded with information overkill. Uh, Okay, what, what, uh, (laughs) what incubation or incubator should I use? I mean, there's so many that are out there and they vary in price and then you have you know i really don't need one that's going to hatch out 300 you know maybe i'm just a soccer mom or maybe i'm just kind of a hobbyist or maybe you know and, and then i see some that just uh are, you know, so there's they're covered up with questions and then the big comment and the, and, and and is the is the um, humidity everybody's talking about humidity you know what should humidity be and then there's dry hatching that's kind of come on the scene over the last uh seven or, or eight years and we'll be talking a little bit about that today as well uh and then of course if they have have a uh, uh, what they would consider a bad hatch, and really that <laughs> that really varies across the board. You might have somebody that says, "Oh, I only had an 80% hatch," but when you look at folks uh, that are doing this big time, uh, not just the commercial hatcheries, but even the like the ideal poultry out in Cameron, Texas, and and the um, Murray McMurray and the cackle hatcheries and, and whatnot, and, and, and they're saying, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're quite happy with, you know, 85, 80, 87%, even an 83 and 82%. Um, we, we, we are happy with that. And, and it's interesting, the backyarders, they're like, if they don't get a, you know, a 95 to 100% hatch rate, they are disappointed. They think that is a failure. Um, and so it's, it's, it's quite entertaining and interesting to see uh, 
different attitudes uh, on what they would consider themselves a successful hatch rate. And then they start troubleshooting. That's what today's show about troubleshooting. Why didn't they hatch? You know, I, I even cracked them open and I have some that, you know, didn't develop even if I, after I candled them. And then I've got, you know, that looks like they may have died around day 17 or 18. Why did they do this? My humidity was saying it was good. My temperature was good. I didn't have any power outages. So we're going to dive in and into all of this today. Uh, and we'll, of course, probably start with some of the basics uh, with, you know, why is it important to choose the right uh, incubator and then get into the basics like your temperature and, and I've got some uh, uh, some different temperatures to to um, comment on that from from experience and talking with others out there um, at the end of the day so you know where I'm coming from uh, one of my most awesome experiences was I actually got to visit and tour um, uh, the hatchery there at ideal poultry in Cameron Texas when I was on book and speaking tour a few years ago and um, you know, walking in, seeing how everything works, seeing seeing the gentleman actually do the vent sexing and and everything from from beginning to end, it was fascinating, very educational. But one thing I did notice when I was looking at their huge, basically walk-in incubators and hatchers, and and, it, and I see the digital readout on the end by the door, and it says you know 99.5 degrees, and and so you think when you, when you see now people say, well, I prefer this, I prefer that, I prefer this temperature. That's fine if it's working for them. Great. But for me, it's still hard to be like, okay, if 99.5 is working for ideal poultry, shipping out 7 million baby chicks every single year, they're putting their kids through college, they're paying their employees, they're being successful, they've been successful since the 30s, um, that's good enough for me. <laughs> so I, at, at a layman's level, I look at it like that, thinking this is awesome. But then there's technology, uh, like speaking with my good friend, the owner of uh, GQF Manufacturing down in Savannah, Georgia, where I believe some of their automatic thermostat incubators ship out at 100 degrees. Um, and then there's the, – I, I, I talked to them about that. I think they were the ones that shared with me that – some science would show you want the inside of the egg to be 99.5. So by the incubator itself, I guess you would call that the ambient temperature inside the incubator being 100, then uh, maybe you're almost kind of guaranteed or rest, you know, you're more assured that the inside of the egg is 99.5. We'll talk. Oh, these are some questions we'll talk uh, with Becca about in, during today's show. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. Get that pen and paper out. And we're going to uh, have a great show for you today. You're going to take a lot of notes. First, I want to say thank you. Um, this will be, I think, the first episode that we are going to start sharing and that will be posted on the poultry site, thepoultrysite.com. So Ryan reached out to me last week and uh, wanted to know if I would be interested in that opportunity. Uh, I was all over it. So uh, if you normally listen to the show on a regular basis, and literally thousands of you do, uh, thank you very much for your continued support. You may be over the next two or three weeks starting to hear a little bit of differences, difference when we take the commercial break, maybe a little difference in our intro, difference in some music we play at our intro and things like that, maybe a little bit more uh, official things going on when we have to come up, say, on a hard break at a specific time and whatnot. But I think overall it's going to make this uh, radio show and podcast much better, a higher caliber, uh, but we're going to still continue what we've done always, and that is sharing science-based, fact-based, study-based information to help folks raise uh, the healthiest flock possible, uh, whether it be backyard, hobby farm, pasture-raised, commercial, um, regardless of what it is. And we do that by having the best guest that we can find. So I uh, wanted to uh, send a shout-out to all of our new listeners over on the poultry site. 
And again, always a shout out to our longtime regular listeners. This podcast has been uh, been broadcast now for this is our 11th year, um, and we hear from so many of you, the homeschoolers that incorporate the show into your uh, curriculum, uh, even even the public schoolers that that listen to the show when they're talking about incubation in the classroom and things like that. Over the road truck drivers that have many farms back at home, and uh, that your wife uh, or, or, or um, other family members taking care of while you are on the road uh, making a making a living. And everybody else that listens to the show, the backyarders and whatnot, thank you so much for supporting this 11 years strong now with this podcast. And thanks to the poultry side for recognizing uh, what we're doing and trying to strive to keep it, again, science-based, fact-based, and study-based information, just like our magazine, the Chicken Whisperer magazine, as well as the podcast, the books that, that I have authored uh, with, again, working with co-authors that are, again, um, top in their field. So uh, got to love that. So thank you very much for tuning in, all of our new listeners over on the poultry site. So let me get over to the phone lines here real quick, and we're going to bring on, we can go ahead and get ready with the uh, show, um, uh, Becca uh, Wasaki, and we're going to be talking, uh, again, all about identifying problems with incubation and hatching. Becca, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Amy, thank you for having me. Yep, sounding good. good no problems there on yeah. that end, and hopefully... Yeah, you can hear me well. So obviously, mm-hmm. when we talk about incubation, a lot of folks uh, at some point, <laughs> if they really enjoy their poultry, they're going to want to go down this path. And then for a lot of folks, it's intimidating. Most people don't start, you know, I'm going to start and I'm going to find me some hatching eggs because that's a whole ball of wax there that they'll have to deal with finding and, and where to look for an MPIP. And, and, and they got to research what breed they want. And who they're gonna, But then it comes to that, that, you know, what incubator do I want? And that's obviously a very important decision. And then, you know, the, the whole science behind it. And, and uh, we talk about incubation like the, the science and, and experience of that, uh, both of them you know, come into play. Uh, and that, that's just very intimidating for a lot of people. So uh, we always try to make it a little bit simple and say, hey, you know, this it doesn't have to be um, all this rolled up into one, but it, all of it does have its own place and, and importance in this. But it, it can be a great experience. I always tell folks, whether you're hatching in the kindergarten classroom or just in your, in, you know, as a soccer mom and, and you want to, you know, try this with your kids, maybe you homeschool, or maybe you're getting into that 300-egg um, sportsman incubator with GQF, or even if you've got a 3,000 unit, there's still some science that plays in regardless if you're doing tabletop or the other, and that's what we want to try to make folks understand it a little bit more today, and that's why we've asked you to come on. That seems to be your, your specialty, which is great. So um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and your passion and you know what your, why this is your specialty, and then We'll move into some questions like the basics of incubation and uh, and hatching, and then we'll get into identifying some problems after we've covered the basics. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so currently, I'm actually a poultry scientist um, with uh, with North Carolina State University in the Preston Department of Poultry Science, um, as well as an independent hatchery consultant. So, um, upon graduating from NC State, I actually went to work for Purdue Farms as a hatchery manager. So I do have a large scale commercial side of or history within my background. Um, upon returning to NC State to be a, a specialist, um, I began doing a lot of early embryonic manipulation types of research, um, and so I got an early on feel for how the embryo develops. And then throughout the time here, um, I've, I've worked with Dr. Mike Wineland, who has now since retired, and he has taken me on to do some independent hatchery consulting. 
So I've just got I've got a, a lot of variety, a wide variety of um, background when it comes to incubation and hatching. That's fabulous. Sounds like you're the uh, the right person for today's show, and, I, and that's why I invited you on because I think it's going to be great in the learning process <laughs> for all of us that have done this before and those of us who are interested in, in doing it for the first time. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the basics. Maybe we won't we'll save our time and maybe not get into uh, choosing the breed they want and finding uh, you know hatching eggs if they don't already have a flock that they're going to obtain uh, the eggs from, and we'll kind of eliminate that part. But let's get right into the uh, kind of choosing the right. Uh, incubator and, and maybe whether it be features and different different things they want to look look for as far as the incubator and a hatcher and, and for us a lot of times the backyard it's it's the same you have this one incubator and when you're done on day 18 you remove those that egg turner and then that's your hatcher now because you just place them on <laughs> the eggs on their side on that on that floor so for a lot of folks that are listening it's all all in one but um, tell us a little bit about the importance of having the right equipment oh of course um well, currently in North Carolina, um, in the springtime, we have a wide, a huge uh, 4-H embryology uh, in the in the school curriculum, and we always recommend, just like you said, the GQFs. Um, they're pretty reliable, pretty sustainable. Um, they don't always use a turner in theirs, and I have seen classrooms that mm -hmm. the turner malfunctions, but it wasn't it wasn't realized until it was after the fact. So, um, but it's always important to make sure that everything is calibrated properly. I always recommend putting in a high-low thermometer and hygrometer that has been certified to make sure that the incubators are absolutely running at the temperature that which they're set to. Because over over the course of time and over the you know, multiple sets and multiple um, hatches you have, it's going to malfunction at some point. Everything does. <laughs> um, but uh, but I always recommend to to kind of have a checks and balances type type of system in place. Um, and I recently had a situation where Everything, nothing really matched at all. So I, in terms of, you mentioned dry hatching, but in terms of humidity, I just I showed someone how to actually create a wet bulb, which measures the amount of evaporation within the incubator. And we finally figured it out on that scale. So. Did you create but that using a shoestring? I know a lot of, and a lot of times, like in homeschool, we've done that with like a, like a, using a, just a shoestring and creating that wet bulb. Did you use something like that? But fortunately, being in the poultry science department, we have um, we have wicks that we use. Um, but I, gotcha, but gotcha. I have recommended shoestrings to people in the past. Yes, absolutely. I know a lot of homeschoolers were like, hey, this is a neat science project for you to do. And then you talk about that and the, how, how how scientific it can be. And you're like, oh, just use this. You can use this special shoestring. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, and it's it going to give you the most accurate measurement ever. <laughs> And we also we often hear, Becca, that you know you'll see folks that say, okay, maybe I can't. Uh, it's not in my budget to buy the, these high dollar, but I may have actually uh, two, uh, say, thermometers inside the incubator, just in case one is wacky. The other one, I maybe, or I can kind of get an average of the two and say, okay, they're they're both pretty close, or one's way off. A lot of times, they'll recommend of having two different thermometers if possible mm -hmm. uh, in, in the incubator so you can compare those in case one is, is not working uh, properly. So I've heard that before with those. And the, and the high, uh, Yeah, so awesome. So still very important. You mentioned GQF. Um, uh, another popular one out there as well for uh, the smaller flock owner is the, uh, the Brincy. 
and uh, I think they're out mm-hmm. of the, the UK, if I'm not mistaken. They're down in Titusville mm-hmm. for their U.S. distributor, and uh, I've used some of theirs as well. And a lot of people like that. You got you know the the, um, the Styrofoam GQF, and then you have now this kind of newer technology of using the the plastic. And my understanding is some of that plastic is infused with antibacterial properties. Uh, the way over my head. Uh, but but the way that it was manufactured with some antibacterial um, uh, properties in that in that plastic. So that's always fascinating to me how technology. Oh, those new you can get some of these. Opportunities are amazing. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So you've got, and then you have everybody's budget. So you may have. Uh, tell us the importance. And we're talking kind of about incubators, and then and then we'll move on next. But you've got um, still air. Which uh, I guess I'm, um, you know, no mm-hmm. fan involved, no air circulation inside. Then you, of course, you have some with fans, and you have some that have the automatic thermostats that show you exactly what it is. You have the wafer thermostats. You got the styrofoam, and of course the plastic ones. But um, I guess depending on how much you want to spend, because I've had success hatching in really all of those. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. uh, then, uh, so if you can kind of, um, let's go down that road of well. Should I spend the extra money for a circulated air incubator? Because I see this, you know, just this regular old steel air, and then it's about whatever twenty dollars more for this circulated. Tell us what, why, why would that be important if we can get away without it, or if hey, we're going to have a much more successful hatch with the air movement? Sure. Um, um, another one that I've recently found um, that that's a little bit more cost efficient or affordable is um, Little Giant, and I think it's a, a uh, okay. Miller Little Giant. Um, they, they run about half the cost of the GQFs. However, the reason that we use GQFs here is that they are TUV and UL listed um, for fire mm-hmm. safety and reasons and whatnot. Um, the, uh, the, the, um, the little giants are not, but I'm not saying that that's a bad thing if you're just doing this at home. It's just for you know, protection in the schools and whatnot. Um, but circulated yeah, versus school. still air. I, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, but circulated versus still air, um, I always recommend – circulated air because you're going to get a more uniform environment versus still air where you can get hot spots that can mm-hmm. affect your hatch later on down the road and, and your ultimately your chick quality, depending on the breed of birds that you are hatching. So, so based on so where that's, that that's, heat is produced, I guess those eggs mm-hmm. near that heat – near the where the heat's being produced may be a little uh, warmer than, say, the, the eggs out on the corners, if you will. Correct, correct. And, okay, and you gotcha. know, once the embryos begin to, around the day six or seven, they're going to start creating their own heat. And so those eggs that are in the hot spots are going to – temperature drives the rate of growth. And so once those eggs in the – or once those embryos in the hot spots begin to grow, they're going to start creating their own heat and generating their own heat, which they're going to – produce, um, they're going to begin to grow faster, and they could potentially hatch out earlier or create a, a, more, right. a, a larger hot spot, you know, so to speak. I was going to say that, too. So they would probably could hatch, have the potential to hatch on day 20 instead of 21. Your cooler eggs may mm-hmm. end up on, on 22, or, and then you've got, you know, three or four days of hatching all together, all these mm-hmm. different times uh, due, due to that. So definitely worth the extra little bit of money to get the uh, circulated uh, circulated air Absolutely. incubator, and that, that totally makes sense. And then I guess the, the if you've got – either way, I think, whether you – have that automatic thermostat with that digital readout on top, you still, I would assume, want a good old-fashioned kind of manual uh, thermometer inside that just, to, again, to have that extra checking there. Don't, even though they, you know, it's, I'm sure it's high-tech and you've got that digital one, you can just turn a dial or whatever setting I guess you want. Still a good idea to have that good old-fashioned uh, um, separate and an additional 
a thermometer in the incubator itself just to keep tabs on everything? Absolutely. Um, the, the, I, always, I, I do recommend the alcohol thermometers. Some people still have mercury thermometers. It doesn't really matter, but they're going to mm-hmm. give you the more, the more accurate temperature. And I always say try to, even the, little, even the small ones that have the, the white background so with the temperatures on the sides, Sometimes they can be a little, they can pl- they have a little play in them, and so I always say, you know, draw a line at the top, draw mm-hmm. a line at the bottom, so that you know exactly where the bulb is supposed to go, and attach it to a surface in there, and th- where the bulb is not lying directly on the surface of the grid or whatever. Um, certain, you know, hang it if you have a cabinet incubator, hang it somewhere mm-hmm. in there so that you can actually get a reading, and not a surface reading, mm-hmm. but an actual air temperature reading. So yeah. Got it. That's always so we're that's talking always about fine. that. Yeah, let's segue right into temperature and um and the importance of that. Now, I think is it still kind of ninety nine point five is still kind of the textbook um, temperature that we're kind of shooting for. I know when you, know, you heard me earlier visiting you know ideal poultry, it was like ninety nine point five. You see that in all the books, and then uh, and is there any um is there any uh, I don't know, science based on kind of what I said earlier, you know, with these, a lot of these, uh, not just GQF, but maybe others where their uh, th- automatic thermostats are shipped out at 100. Have you heard that before where if, if the temperature mm-hmm. is 100, then we really want the inside of the egg to be 99.5. So we feel maybe that extra half degree uh, at 100, then, then maybe we're coming closer to guaranteeing the inside of the egg is 99.5. Have you heard that? Is it, if that, is that, could that just be a suggestion? Is there any, uh, what's the word, lividity to that or, you know, uh, valid, validate that? Or is that just something that, hey, you know what, we're shipping these out at 100. And you can still, even on the automatic ones, because you still have the, the experienced hatchers and, and incubation folks that say, well, I prefer this temperature for whatever reason. If it's working for them, great. Who do, who do I sell uh, otherwise? But have you heard that, that scenario where, you know, 100 will have the, is, is that true? We want the inside of the egg to be 99.5 or we just or is that just the temperature inside the incubator maybe you can clear up that for us because we've heard that a lot over yeah, the years um, yeah you want i mean you want the you want the temperature to be close to as close to 99 point well let me let me back up if you have sure. a it depends on if you have multi-stage versus single stage so those are two key important so we're going to sidebar from that for just a minute but keep that in the back of your mind okay um but in terms of you want the core center of the egg to be um, around 100 after 24 hours. And the way to do okay. that is take a regular old thermometer that you would put in your child's ear, and you can yep. actually measure the eggshell temperature at 24 hours after. And it should be the same exact reading as your thermometers are saying. Uh, once that embryo okay. begins, then therefore begins to grow and develop, then it's going to increase that internal temperature of the eggshell itself as well. So, But you want it to be at um, the, the the proper level at at least at least 99.5 100 in in a single stage situation where you're setting all your eggs at one time hatching them all at one time there's what we call a step down profile and this is used in commercial hatcheries so they'll start mm-hmm. and every 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 company's different everybody's got a, their different idea of, of whatever but the mm-hmm. the standard one that I use is start your eggs at 100.4 and after 24 hours drop them down to 100.2 and then after okay. 12 hours, drop them down to 100. And then it, it, it keeps on going down, so forth and so on. Uh, once those eggs start to hit, like I said, day six, eight, the, the ex, exothermic temperature, the temperature that the embryo is actually given off, increases exponentially. Mm-hmm. So I always okay. like to let the eggshell tell me what to do. 
So when I take eggshell temperatures and they're reading at 101 at 14 days, that's too hot. Those in, those have, those embryos okay. are growing too fast. Um, okay. I, I would say around 100.4 to 100.5 is an ideal. And I know I'm getting a, a very tight window here, um, but you're also mm-hmm. talking about hatching a million chicks a week versus you know three right, at right. a time or you know 30 at a time. So there is some play in there. Um, from a commercial standpoint, broilers, broiler chicks are hatched with all of the muscle fibers that they're ever going to have. Basically, as they grow mm-hmm. through the seven to nine weeks, they just get larger. During incubation, if you if you drive that embryo to grow too fast, they actually will begin um, catabolizing or breaking down those mu- muscle fibers in order to get the energy to continue to grow um, because oxygen comes into that as well. And so if you start breaking down those muscle fibers, you're going to in- influence performance down the line. So that's why you want to make sure you have these ideal situations in a single-stage setting um, and, then, and then continue to drop it down. And I think some of them even actually hatch around 96 um, mm-hmm. the, for, the final, uh, for the final couple of days. So, I mean, they, they drop it down low. But these embryos are pretty forgiving when it comes to these types of scenarios on a small-scale basis especially. If you're in a multi-stage type when you're talking, situation, sorry. That's it. When you're talking about that 100.6, 100.5, that's that's you're talking about when you're taking the temperature of the egg shell, not necessarily what you egg have shell. your incubator set at. Got it. Correct. Got it. Okay, interesting. Um, and before I forget, and then and then you adjust the temperature for, of your incubator. I'm sorry. Uh huh. Um, what I was, was going to say the other thing. Then you adjust your incubator in, in in accordance to what the eggshell temperature is actually telling you. You know, if you've got an embryo that's running hot, drop that, drop your incubator um, temperature down, say 0.2 to 0.5 degrees, depending on um, how hot the embryo actually is. And then or the eggshell is. I'm sorry, the eggshell, starts... not the embryo. <laughs> <laughs> the um, and then as the embryo starts to grow, obviously they're producing some of their own heat, and you maybe actually you may have to adjust that even even more again through throughout the hatch. So for our our, our listeners that have normally listened to the show, um, it. it you're saying because you're talking about hatching, say uh, a broiler chick versus say a production layer, you're still mm-hmm. you would see differences. Um, and if you walked into a uh, broiler production, and okay, we we're hatching out you know a million uh, chicks that are you know broilers that are going to be on the plate, versus if you go in and they're hatching out a bunch of production layers like a Bovin's Brown, th- there's mm-hmm. there's some some differences there, even in, in incubation, based on which one of those you're going to, because you just talked about that, how that, the muscle and the, and the, and, and the broiler versus maybe the layer. So you're saying even, there would be even differences basic on hatching production uh, broilers and production layers out there in the commercial industry. I, I, I do not, I do not, I do not think so. I do not. I, I think okay. the embryo grows at the rate the embryo is going to grow which is going to be driven by the temperature in which the incubators run at and the humidity that the incubator it. that the, that is set for. So the, okay. an, an embryo, I'm not, I, I, I may, some may, some may disagree. An embryo is an embryo is an embryo. Right. Now I realize that some <laughs> eggs it. hatch differently than others because the eggshells are different and conductance and pore size and length and this and that and the other, but you're, you're going to drive that embryo to grow you, with the temperature that you have, that you have your incubator set to. Okay. Um, we, we have kind of dispelled this myth and asked this uh, in the past over the last 11 years on occasion, but you, you often hear folks that say um, if you set your incubator warmer, 
you're more apt to hatch more cockerels. And if your incubator is cooler, you'll probably hatch out more pullets. And I think that's pretty much been debunked over the years. But do you know of any science that's tried to uh, sway that one way or the other with the temperature based on? And I want to say that memory serves that you that that's a possibility when you're dealing with um, reptiles. I think I've read something about that, but even I don't know if that's that's proven by science. But we often hear that, and it may have carried over from the reptile world that oh, if you if you incubate a little bit warmer, you'll get more cockerels and a little cooler. And I, and I always go back to the fact that if that was a possibility, then you know all of the commercial <laughs> folks would be utilizing Especially that. Especially in the layer industry, that. they would. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so exactly. oddly and ironically enough, I was watching Nat Geo last night. I know this is so random, but I was watching <laughs> Nat Geo last night, and they were actually talking about sea turtles hatching out, and if there is a an alligator, and if there is a degree difference, it can affect male male to female ratio. So that's so funny that you brought that up. That I actually was watching that last night. Wow. But no, okay, so far, so I, mean, I, I know people. Had to in, do with... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, but I know people in the, in the poultry industry. The Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think we have a delay. Um, I, I, There's um, a little bit more. I, I, I know that I know that people in the industry um, um, have have tried, or researchers in the past have, have tried, but um, I don't. I've never seen any any. I've I've never personally seen any type of foundational um, proven method of of being able to uh, alter the, the the sex of the embryo by using temperature. I know there's science going on right now. I set in actually uh, two classes and two separate uh, um, events that I attended where I, th- I want to say it's in Germany where they're trying to do in ovo sexing and, uh, and how, they're, mm-hmm. how they're doing that. It was pretty fascinating. Obviously, they're long, mm-hmm. long away from being able to do that kind of mainstream large scale. But on a, on a small kind right. of a, in a, a little lab, they're, 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 they're having some success with that. But how they'll ever get to that being large scale, I don't know if they'll ever get to that point. But the science definitely is, is very fascinating. So um, I've got to go to a commercial break. We're going to go there. And then when we come back, I think we've, we've gone down this, this temperature issue. And then when we come back, we'll start talking about the humidity issue um, because that's always something that just seems to bother and hinder a lot of folks out there, whether it be I can't keep the humidity high enough or it's just always too low or it's always too high I can't lower it and then there's this thing over the last uh, seven or eight years we've seen talking about dry incubators and dry incubation and, and, and actually adding zero water to your incubator for up until day 18 and then at day 18 mm-hmm. going up to the 60 to 65 percent so we'll uh, we'll talk about humidity when we come back after the break so folks if you're just tuning in we're talking about identifying problems with incubation and hatching we're kind of starting off with the basics and then once we've covered this here uh, we don't have too much far to go then we'll start talking about kind of identifying problems like you know what they they didn't hatch or you know did was there too much humidity and maybe when they pipped through the air cell it was full of water and they drowned all these things that we hear they look like they died around day 17 18 what could have caused this we'll get into some troubleshooting here um, with becca as well so stay with us we'll be back right after this uh, short break when you need an incubator think brincy the incubation specialists Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. 
Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at idealpoultry.com. That's idealpoultry.com. Sweet PDZ has been keeping horse stalls ammonia-free and healthy for nearly 33 years. However, ammonia is ammonia, regardless of the species producing it. Therefore, it will do the same great job in your chicken coops and brooders. Sweet PDZ safeguards flock health by neutralizing and eliminating harmful levels of ammonia and odors. Safe and effective moisture absorption. All-natural, non-toxic, premium-grade zeolite mineral. Contains no masking scents or chemical perfumes. Safe and beneficial to dispose with waste on compost and gardens. Learn more at SweetPDZ.com. That's SweetPDZ.com. At Kambach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all-natural, antibiotic-free with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Metzer Farms is now hatching and shipping the premier egg layer. This girl is consistently laying jumbo eggs with a higher nutrient density and lower water content than your eggs now. She is an extremely hardy bird and the most heat and cold tolerant egg layer available, allowing for year-round outdoor production. An eggshell unmatched in sturdiness and thickness, making cracks a thing of the past. Increase your health and double your egg profits. Of course, we're talking about ducks. Duck eggs are revered by chefs for their succulent flavor and by bakers for being the better baking egg. Learn more about this extraordinary duck, the Golden 300, or any of our other 35-plus breeds of ducks and geese at MetzerFarms.com and order your next flock from us. And now we return to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today. Identifying problems with incubation and hatching. We're kind of covering the basics now, uh, but we only have a couple of more topics there to go. And then we're going to be talking about, again, identifying problems with incubation and hatching and why this happened, why may have this happened, and, and what, what I can do to troubleshoot more to make sure I have a more successful hatch the next time I do this. And our guest is Becca Wysocki from uh, Poultry Research Specialist over at uh, NC State. And uh, we're so glad to have her on today. 
Um, so let's let's kind of move on from temperature and let's talk about the importance of of humidity. And this is always a huge challenge. Out of the temperature, they think it's pretty basic. 99.5, go with it. Um, and you shed a lot of light on that and how technical even that can be for 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 a lot of us. And and even getting one of those thermometers we use on our children's ear to to monitor the egg itself that's fascinating but um yeah so but now with, with humidity that's always a challenge you know us here in the south we don't seem to have a problem we our problem is maybe keeping it lower than than too much and so first let's start with the basics issues that we may see problems we may see with humidity that's too low and problems we may see with the humidity that's too high and i'll start with just by saying that uh from from everything that in the past we kind of kind of generically speaking uh we i think most folks will say for the first 18 days somewhere between 45 and 55 percent and then on day 18 again we're going to stop turning the eggs and we'll increase that to somewhere between uh, 55 and 65 so 45 to 55 the first 18 and then the last three 55 to 65 I think is kind of a general ballpark of what's mostly shared out there mm -hmm. but uh, on your end if that if that sounds pretty reasonable great if not elaborate but main, mainly we want to know the issues we may have with too low and too high humidity throughout the hatch and it may be different based on when we have that too low and too high sure um so in terms of, I, I agree with those windows on a commercial, like I said, again, on a commercial standpoint, you're going to get a tighter window mm -hmm. from 53 to 55%. Um, but okay. from a small producer hatch, uh, 45 to 55 is absolutely fine. And especially okay. you want to make sure that it's increased at least uh, up to I, I, 55 to 65 is a, is a reasonable um, window there. Uh, okay. the, the, the chicks have... In, within the egg, they have what's called the allantoic sac, and it's actually a water reservoir, and um, and it's also the receptacle for the waste byproduct as they're consuming the nutrients. So um, you're not really going to be able to dehydrate your chick in the first 18 days, but they do have to have a certain percent moisture loss during during the during, during development. Um, anywhere between 11 and 14 percent is kind of what your moisture loss is going to be. Um, any more than that, you're going to have some chick quality issues and some performance issues. Any right. any less than that, you're going to have uh, chick quality issues. Any any more than that, you're going to have chick quality issues. And especially during the latter part of incubation, if you if you don't have enough moisture loss, they're not going to be able to utilize the yolk, and you're going to have big swollen, distended bellies, um, and uh, just an overall uh, poor poorer looking looking chick once they hatch out um, so you want to make sure that window those windows stay about within that realm um, especially in the drier conditions like, like you said you know here in North Carolina humidity is not a problem especially in the summertime <laughs> right. uh, uh, yeah it's like walking out to a wet blanket um, but uh, <laughs> so keeping it down would be the the other issue as well and I understand you know we always talk about don't put your incubators near a near an air vent and don't put it directly in the sun uh -huh. um, you know, and, and ambient humidity is always going to be a challenge in the south, and dry dry humidity is going to always be one in your drier state. So that's just that's one of those uh, <laughs> uh, the area aerial types of area types of um, weather that you're going to have to contend with. So you just kind of have to just monitor it, like I said, with the hygrometer. Um, I don't recommend dry hatching. I know it works for some people. Um, I've I've read some some things online and whatnot because you can uh, okay. believe everything you read online but um 
but I have exactly. had some things online where people have had success, and if if it works for them, great. I personally, as a, as a scientist and somebody who's seen a lot of issues, um, I I don't recommend it. Those, those windows have been proven to to work for a good hatch. That's just my personal scientific yeah. opinion. I, I, I was reading reading one site. They're saying. Um, that they allow their humidity to get as low as 15% before they even add any water um, up to day 18. And then at day 18, they kind of sign into that 55 to 65% on day 18 till, till hatch. But up until then, they purposely try to keep it, you know, 15 to 20. They don't add any water and keep it at, you know, 15 or, or 20%. They you know, claim they have all that success. I, again, try to go back to <laughs> You know the, you know mm-hmm. if it's mm-hmm. if, if, if these big large corporations are have paying tons of their employees, their employees are buying these nice houses, they're putting their kids through college, and 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 because they're doing it, you know this way, and it's working for them. I mean, who who am I to say that that's? And I'm not saying they're saying that's not right. They're just hey, we're doing it this way, and we've had success this way. But I still kind of go back mm-hmm. to kind of the uh, that ideal poultry scenario where hey. Their incubator when I was touring said 99.5. By golly, that's good enough for me. That's all I need to know there. So, but I right. know it's, it's come. I remember getting into a debate about dry hatching with some guy up in uh, Arkansas. It must have been eight or nine years ago, and it just just like, why? No, you're the only person out on the planet right now that's even recommending this. I don't understand how. You know, uh, sorry. I think I, I, I was like, I'm going to stick with what Ideal Poultry does because that's you know I've got all the proof I need there. But um, so yeah, humidity and it can be tricky. When people talk about increasing it, like putting a wet sponge in there to try to increase that humidity and whatnot. Tell me this, because we often hear clean this a wet lot. Sponge, with, a clean wet sponge. Clean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't use your dish sponge that you've been watching your spaghetti off of your plates. <laughs> That's a great point. Absolutely. But we often hear this kind of terminology all the time, where your humidity was too high, and say the air cell filled up with water and so when they pit through the air cell it was full of water and and they drowned is that a thing because we hear that all the time if your humidity is too high that may be something that the, the chick could drown or when they pit through the air cell then and the, which is full of water because too much humidity they would drown because of that is that is that possible is that a thing or they're just using the wrong terminology with too much humidity in that particular situation because we hear that all the time i've i've honestly never heard of that I'm not, I've actually never heard that before, and I've never heard of it happening, okay. hence the reason I've never heard of it before. Um, it. In, okay. in all of the thousands of eggs I've ever broken out, I've never once seen moisture or water or anything in an air cell. And I've, I've, I've had my shares of, of good and bad breakouts, sure. <laughs> um, but, I, but I've, <laughs> never, I've never once seen water in the air cell ever. Um, okay. That's that's just me. But I was talking about breaking. Well, the, another thing that um, I know folks have encountered because I've I've had some of the the, the people that I've dealt with um, at at hatch they're they're um, they're trying to get it up to what 65 and all of a sudden it spikes to 70 and 75 80 80 percent, which is obviously uh-huh. way too high and what you don't want. But when I was just talking about the Elantois, that water reservoir, so what happens is when they break through that air cell. Or they, when they begin to to externally pit, not the air cell, but they they begin to externally pit, they they break that that allantoic sac, which is a release of the moisture of water. Now it's not going to drown them because it's not going to be in the air cell, but they, that's that's when your humidity is really going to get higher because all of your chicks are beginning to hatch 
and it's releasing that water, which is going to cause your, your humid environment, your, your increase in humidity at hatch. So when you think you need to add water to all four channels, and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, it's too high, then that's why. And now, now you know why all of a sudden it goes, it, it, it spikes up to 70, 75. So. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I just it's, I've heard that for years, and I was like, well, I'm going to address that now. I've got the specialist on, so because you still hear it today about the cause of too much humidity. So, okay, let's, let's move on because I know people are kind of chomping at the bit, if you will, about uh, problems and issues. So basically, it, it, from you always hear now this term, which I never used to hear back in the day, 11, 12 years ago, but now it seems like the last two years, all we hear is lockdown. They're going on lockdown at day 18, and this is just like this holy grail of no matter what happens, you do not want to open that incubator after day 18. It's lockdown. It's like Fort Knox, and 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 I, I mean, like I said, I know people hatch in different environments. When we would hatch it, like in, uh, and we did it for years, probably seven or eight years, in a kindergarten classroom when my wife was teaching public school, and you know, oh my gosh, the the kind of the rule breaking we do, like you know, uh, taking out, weighing the egg, or or you know. What else we would take anyway? You know, all kinds of experiments with stuff, and even with our farm school now, um, there are things like okay, let's oh candling. Okay, we're going to candle this week or that week and whatnot. Mm -hmm. and, and so you just kind of like <laughs> okay, and, and you still mm -hmm. end up having again, it's all relative, pretty good hatch. But what I mean is that it's um, I, I, and then that commercial setting and whatnot is it is that kind of the holy grail too? At day eighteen, nothing, nothing goes in here. We're not checking. It's just day eighteen. It's like lockdown is that does that go for the hatchery as well because we now now we're seeing that term used all the time no matter what happens at day 18 nothing you remove the turner uh, the egg turner i guess you stop turning them or remove the egg turner in those in the smaller incubators place them kind of flat on the on the bottom of the screen of the floor and then at day 18 they're in lockdown no more candling no more nothing uh, is that is that also kind of in the real world, if you will, or in the commercial industry? Day eighteen, that that's done. You do not. It's 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 they're in there. No matter what happens, we'll just see what happens. But is that? I know we stopped turning at day eighteen. I'm assuming that happens in the commercial industry, and then uh, the, the people claim in the in the not so commercial industry that's that's locked down and nothing should actually no matter under no circumstances again i can't because they stress it just like i'm doing now do we open that incubator so how how important is that does that happen in, in in the commercial industry at day 18 we stop turning and let the hatch or move them over to a hatcher instead of the incubator yeah. i guess on day 18 i'm guessing that happens and then um and then as as far as not opening it at, you know, at day 18 that's like the biggest no-no you could possibly do elaborate some on day 18 and and how important it is again stop turning the egg and and, and having them on lockdown <laughs> shed some light on that well, and we'll get to identifying <laughs> some problems <laughs> sure so in a in a, in, like, in, a com in a commercial industry if you're if you're machine is running like it's supposed to you should never have to open your incubator and you should never have to open your hatcher in a in a commercial setting. I mean, everything should just kind of tick and run, you know, smoothly. But you're going to have those times when you have to open it because somebody like me comes in and says, hey, can I come in and candle your eggs or check on this or look at this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, but, and, and just, just like I was saying, you can't check eggshell temperatures without opening your incubator. But in the same regard, you know, I, I don't think that lockdown is an absolute hundred percent. If you don't open it at all, how are you gonna how are you going to get the moisture in there to increase it up to your sixty to sixty five percent during hatch if you don't open it up? You know, if you if your water evaporates. 
because if you don't have the humidity during during especially during external tipping, you know, you're gonna have those shell membranes that stick to the chick. They can't twist and turn in order to hatch and then they're just gonna sit there and struggle and potentially die. And it's gonna affect your chick quality again. Um so I, I mean I would say minimize it. You shouldn't really have to unless you need to add water, unless you want a candle or mm-hmm. You know, just to, just for basic knowledge, but I, I don't think that that's an end-all, be-all. If you, you you cannot absolutely 100% not open this because I, I don't see a I don't see a problem with it. And I, and and I know the hatcheries, as long as they're running smoothly, they keep them shut. But instances occur, uh, mechanical failures happen, and you have to do something in order to 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 figure it out. But I that's a funny that's a funny term of lockdown. You know, <laughs> lockdown. Oh my gosh, it's almost it's like just somebody's become the term. Yeah, it's like somebody's <laughs> kid's missing in Walmart or something. You know, lock down, shut the doors. <laughs> I just got a question. Um, I got a question posted from a listener here, and uh, they want to know. So, um, if, if in the commercial industry, let me read this. In the commercial industry, if they're not opening the incubator and hatcher at all, how do they do? They candle their eggs, um, and do they remove the ones that aren't developing at say day five or whatever? So that that was a question that just came in. Did, are they not candling? And if they are candling, how do they remove those bad eggs that aren't developing? Sure. No. Um. They 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 absolutely they. When I say that they don't they don't open it yet, they do open it. They shouldn't have to unless they are going in for general maintenance. But yes, they do candle. Um. And no, they do not remove them. Um, and you were, and I meant to hit on this earlier, but you were talking about transfer at day 18. Some transfer at 18, some transfer at 19, depending on the company protocol. But they also do the Inovo okay. injections for vaccination. Um, and so some of these new Inovo right. systems, um, you know, they deliver the vaccine through the air cell into the allantoic sac. I'm sorry, um, amniotic sac. And these some, some of these systems now actually have egg removers that actually candle the eggs during transfer, and they'll actually they will they will remove the the, the infertile or say clear eggs if you want to call it. Okay, got it. Yeah, that question just came in, and I'm like, hey, that's a really good question because again, you yeah, always hear question. about the, the candling on whatever candle day, and then removing the the ones that aren't developing so they don't just get, explode and and stink everything up and cause right. problems later. So that's awesome. So, so we that, have that kind small, of covers, um, I think, 360. Huh? Cabinets. We we have small 360 cabinet nature form incubators too that we work with, and um and then we we actually have a separate hatcher. So I mm-hmm. personally candle the eggs prior. You know, you're talking 300 eggs, not 90,000 uh-huh. or you know however many. You have. But right. um, I personally candle and remove the eggs just for my own personal benefit because that's just mm-hmm. that's just how I am. Um, so. But in terms of having to candle them and having to remove them, it's not it's not 100% necessary, uh, in, okay. my, in my opinion. But I mean, it's always it's always nice to know in terms of what's not growing, what died, uh, what might be infertile, what might have early been considered an early dead, um, and those are the ones that you would want to break out. Okay. Awesome. Um, I just had a question on the tip of my tongue, and I absolutely lost it. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to be a mm-hmm. great question. And I started following following that and getting focused on what you were saying, but that's not a big deal. Um, so what we, I was going to move on next to kind of identifying issue, and it may come back to me because I thought it was a really good good question. Okay. But, um, yeah, so no, we've got the I humidity, can, and now we're talking. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Uh, go ahead. No, yeah, you, you go. Don't forget it. 
No, no, no. So please, I, I was going all down a different road as well. I, I, I didn't think of it. I was thinking, I know what I was going to say, but no, please go ahead. <laughs> oh no, I was just I was going to say, you know, a lot of the times uh, I, I always encourage people to break out their unhatched eggs so that they can know: Do I have a fertility issue? Is it an early dead issue? And because all of these things, is it is it a mid dead? Is it a late dead? You know, all of these things can absolutely tell you what went wrong and when it went wrong, and so you can know and identify, such as if my eggs didn't turn, if my turn wasn't working for the first three to seven days, what what can I expect? You can expect a lot of um, you can expect a lot of you can expect a higher increase of early dead. You can in, you can expect um, uh, issues with uh, ab- abnormalities if my if your turning doesn't isn't great during you know early and mid um, incubation. You're going to have what's called malpositions. Your egg, your embryos are actually going to be upside down, um, where their where their hocks are sticking out of the top. Uh, the, these are all critical keys to look into to say, okay, if this happens, if this is what I'm seeing, then I can know that maybe I had a turning issue, maybe I had a you know mid uh, earlier middle, or you know if you, if you see other indicators that could be, oh, I, I, that was definitely a temperature issue in terms of. Uh, multiple uh, multiple beaks, multiple legs, multiple heads. Um, the, these are all kinds of problem-solving things. So I always, always, always encourage people to to break open their eggs so they can see what they're looking yeah. for. Or at. We're going to definitely talk about that after my next break. I did remember the two questions I was going to ask. One would be, um, say, in a commercial setting, um, because so many – folks on the small scale, you know, they, they'll set 48 eggs, and if they don't have 46 hatched, they're very disappointed. Um, so at w- what percentage, because I've heard anywhere from, hey, anything over 80% is good, or we, we pretty much on average get 83 to 85%, and we're happy with that, obviously. Mm-hmm. We're making a living doing mm-hmm. that. In a commercial setting, though, what what percentage of hatch are they content with uh, or are they happy with? I mean, anything over is great, but if any, what, what's that number if it's lower than they get a little concerned, but what are they happy with, 80, 85%? What's in the commercial world as far as a percentage? Great question. Um, I, from my, well, I can, I can tell you from my experience, um, they're happy with the <laughs> the, the, age, the, the age of the breeder flock is going to be affected, or that the, the hatch and the fertility is going to um, affect the the uh-huh. the perform or the, the hatch and the performance. Um, but that's also that can also be considered a hatch of fertile versus non infertile eggs. So there's always that contention because the shell's thinner and this and that and the other. But um, anywhere depending on the age of the flock. You know, seventy-five percent, eighty, eighty, eighty to eighty-five percent. Eighty-five percent is great. That's what that's what we would typically hatch from a prime flock. Um, sometimes up okay. to ninety, ninety-two for a prime flock when that's that's where they're at their peak of production. So um, it just it, it varies, and it varies, egg, you know, egg to egg and company to company um, in terms of okay. yeah, how they're going to hatch. And, I've always heard that kind of. 80 to 85, then, you know, mm-hmm. 83, I think, rings a bell with me. But 80 to 85 percent, they're pretty happy with that. And, and I see so many times. And I've seen it as bad as 60 you know, and, 65 from the old, old <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Right. Or the school hatches where you're like, okay, I don't have an egg turner for you, so you just have to remember to turn them. And, and then we won't turn them over the weekend because there's teachers not here, and they don't want to have to take them home and bring them back and all that. So, you know, we, we've gone Ooh. through all of that with, with the kind of hatching in the classroom where they don't get turned from Friday at 5 p.m. until Monday at 7 a.m., you know, and, and we've tried to compare, you know, the different uh, still air and, and uh, 
uh, other uh, mm-hmm. incubators. My other question is the turning. So, um, you know, you've got egg turners out there that are just set on a timer, and they'll go 45 degrees, I guess, to 45 degrees or whatever that angle is, back and forth, back and forth. And then one of the most recent incubators I got from Italy um, that's totally, totally random. So it's programmed to where it may go from right to center, back to right, right all the way to left, left center, left center, right, left, right, center, right. Center. I mean, it's totally random because their, their theory is that, well, obviously it's random under wow. the end. Um, and so it's, their, their egg turner is totally random like that versus just left and right or left mm-hmm. and center and then right. So it, I thought that was kind of fascinating uh, with that. That is. Um, so kind of, kind of give us an idea because people often, <laughs> including myself, think like, okay, look, let's, let's take this yours. There's a hen in my backyard. It's broody. Right. It's sitting on a clutch of about <laughs> 10 eggs. And I mean, really humidity. Are you serious? I mean, yeah. I mean, or, or you know, temperature, you know, she's getting up every, you know, once a day to eat and drink, we get it. But, but I mean, she's just kind of turning the eggs hither and nither with her feet on occasion, however many times a day, because mm-hmm. we're so instilled with that. Okay. Uh, you want to turn, you want to turn them if you're going to manually turn them an odd amount of time. So either three times Correct. or five times, you don't want to turn four times, Correct. but three to five times an odd time. And then of course it's, best to have that turner for just to make life easier but okay let's go back to like the commercial industry these guys that are doing it sure. and they're doing it for a reason um what those egg turners are they totally random is there a method to the madness or is it just right and left and right and left and and then you know just continually throughout the hatch versus just say three to five times a day if you're manually turning them Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, so uh, different companies have different incubators. You've got Chipmaster, you've got James uh-huh. Bay, you've got Nature Form, you've got Pause Reform, you've got, uh, you know, all these different ones. They all turn yeah. right to left, right to left, right to left every hour. Um, there's, and, but they, and they do theirs at a 45-degree angle. But the only reason, well, I'm not going to say the only reason, but the reason they do a 45-degree angle is they're meant to distribute even circulation of temperature throughout, be it a multi-stage or single stage. They, these machines are made to run at a 45 degree angle. If it's at a 36, you're going to, okay. you're going to not have that, that constant circulation. So those are, those are meant to, now do you get, do you get 45? No, I've seen 20 and 25. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's why that they are, they are built that way so that the airflow and the way the fans are spinning and at the RPMs they're spinning, is going to circulate the air around no different than in your smaller incubators, but you're going to, it's, it's uh-huh. because you're working on a smaller scale, it's going to be a more even circulation. But it is left to right, left to right. I've never even heard of anything going up, down, all around. And I wonder, it's kind of funny to me, I'm wondering if they're trying to mimic a more natural type of egg turning by the, the hen I, versus a mechanical. Yeah, you know, that's that. interesting. That's exactly what they said. Yes, Becca, that's exactly what they said. They said, it's more natural. That's how kind of the hen doesn't do everything exactly the same. So, I mean, it just goes, it goes left and right. I mean, it's a typical egg turner. You've got the egg sitting in there, and it just goes pivots to the left to the right. And at the farthest to the right, it's probably 45 degrees. But there's, but it's totally random. Yeah. Instead of just right all the way to the left, it may go right. left center, back to the left, and then all the way to the right, and then center. Well, she's and not drawing right X's and O's to on the left, tops so. of her eggs when she's turning them either. So she doesn't know whether or not she's <laughs> X to O or O to X or five times on one and three on the, you know. She, I, I, I get it. I get it. That's funny, though. I've got to do another quick commercial break and then when we come back we're going to talk about a few of the identifying problems like you know they they were I mean when I cracked them open these chicks look 
just like the ones that hatch that will just say kind of fully developed in the egg, but they didn't, they didn't uh, hatch out. Or maybe because we always hear, no matter what, it's the Holy Grail. Do not help the chick out at all. That's survival of the fittest. If it can't tip out, if it can't hatch out, there's something wrong with it. You don't want it. Never help. And then you have the folks that say, well, if I help it out and it dies, well, if I don't help it out, it's going to die. So I'm still in the same boat whether I help it out or not. If it's, it's going to die, it's going to die. But if I help it out and it lives, well, then I'm one up on the game. So you, so you hear that. So when we get back, we'll talk about identifying problems uh, that we may see. Or maybe, hey, you know, this, this one only developed at maybe 10 uh, and, and what what different causes of that and then the issue of hey you know they they, they tip through the shell I've got a tiny little I can see their beak I can see them moving and then 24 hours later they're dead as a doornail they didn't make it all the way out what what's the issue here and should I have helped them out because that's always a big topic in the uh, hobby and, and backyard flock so we'll be back stay with us right after this short break and uh, we'll continue with identifying problems with incubation and hatching stay with us folks Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. Hey, Chicken Whisperer fans. I'm proud to partner with Rita Marie's Chicken Coops. Rita Marie's provides American-made, built-to-order chicken coops with the highest quality and attention to detail. Their mission is to empower Americans with self-sufficiency while making America's backyards beautiful. I have one of their coops. I'm using it for my Bovins Brown Layers. I went with a Dutch-style coop that has a classic barn style, and I was able to pick the size, features, and paint and trim colors that I wanted. I was surprised at the overall detail and the quality of construction. Rita Marie's builds the highest quality Amish crafted coops made to your order for an easy hands-off experience. Remember that not all Amish products are created equal. Find your beautiful new coop at largechickencoops.com. That's largechickencoops.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 
4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer here to tell you that if you have backyard poultry, nothing is more important than making sure your feathered friends are safe from infectious poultry diseases. Learn the simple steps to keep your birds healthy by visiting this website, healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. That's healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. A message from the USDA. And now we return to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us. I'm going to tell you about a couple of products we've been using on the farm here now for one product over a year and the other product for probably about six months now. I saw a, a picture on one of the uh, Facebook chicken groups of somebody. It was a picture of a Jeep sitting in their garage, and apparently they only use the Jeep on the weekends, and she had mentioned that her husband washes the Jeep once a week before they take it out on the weekends. <laughs> and she had a picture of the, the hood of the Jeep, the front grill and the hood, absolutely covered in poultry dust because they were brooding baby chicks in the garage and uh, she was like you know look, my husband's a trooper he washes it every week anyway so it's not a big deal but I wanted to share with you the amount of dust from these this brooder that I have uh, in in my garage and so that was a perfect opportunity for me to share a product that we've been using here uh, in our coops and in the select brooders that we have because we've got a, a really good commercial brooder uh, we call it from GQF that we use primarily but when we're actually doing experiments here and, and, and testing products, we'll, we'll break out the good old kind of homemade Rubbermaid bin brooder, gallon water, a quart feeder, you know, the Brency Eco Glow heat source and whatnot. Uh, but we've used a product called Chick Fresh, and uh, it's it technically uh, 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 helps eliminate the ammonia odor and just the odor that comes from, say, brooding baby chicks. And you can use it in your coop as well, but it also eliminates a lot of the dust <clears throat> involved in brooding so um, you, you can find it on on Amazon and they've got a two-pack special they're running now or you can buy it individually and try it out go look at the reviews they're they're astounding they're awesome and uh, we it's one of those things where we tested it uh, for several months and when we get things I have to tell folks like you know I'm not uh, I'm kind of skeptical but it's something now that we still use on a continual basis and uh, you can spray it into the, the the pine wood shavings in your brooder you can split in your nest boxes, in your coop, once a day when you go to gather eggs. And uh, without a doubt, if you start using this in a brooder setting, you will see the reduction in dust um, and the reduction in, of course, odor as well. We know most people, whether it's recommended or not, keep their brooder either inside the house, in the garage, in the sunroom, in a bathroom, in a spare bathroom, in a spare bedroom. They just, they're doing it regardless of what we say, do or not do. Um, and they're, the odor, they're having to deal with the odor. So Chick Fresh uh, Odor Control, check it out because it will reduce some of that dust and that that post reminded me to share that with you guys this this gentleman's jeep in the garage covered in poultry dust the other one actually uh was developed it's called um chicken delight and we actually used this before it came to market for about a year here on the farm and basically you do one scoop per gallon of water and we have used this product basically what it is it is it's electrolytes it's vitamins it's minerals it's probiotic it's prebiotic um, amino acids um, everything that is in there so if you're one that buys all these separate oh I got to buy this probiotic or I got to buy this prebiotic oh you know what I need to do electrolytes in the summertime oh I need to add this uh, for that 
This is just a single product that you can use that incorporates all of that. Why do I like this product is because it was developed by a global um, uh, nutrition, basically, uh, uh, company out uh, uh, phytobiotics out of uh, Germany and um, so we know it was developed by scientists for the health of our backyard and hobby flock chickens um, and I'm sure there's a product just like this this is probably derived from in the commercial industry but we've been using that and we've used it in our chicks we've used it in our broilers here we just got done processing boilers um, we use it in our layers and we've had great success with this because a lot of people have so many different products they use oh I got to use this open up this little packet and put it in with my brooder and then and then I'm going to put in this and I'm going to do vitamins and I'm going to do electrolytes and then oh and then once they're older I got to change to this oh it's summertime it's hot now I got to go buy this this is a single use product for all age groups chicks broilers layers at all ages of life it's very simple they got it formulated one scoop per gallon and uh, and it's golden so you can find that on Amazon as well but I wanted to share with you those are two products most recently that have come to market that we've actually firsthand tested on the farm for many many months and that now we're sharing with you. So check them out on Amazon. That's both Chick Fresh Odor Control and the um, Chicken Delight, D-E-L-Y-T-E, Chicken Delight. Check them out. Try it and let us know. Send me an email on how you like these products. I have yet to hear any negative comments about either one of those products, which I'm thrilled with. So check that out. Let's get back over here and talk to Becca. We'll wrap up the show uh, very quickly. We're running a little bit over, but um, there's probably not a whole lot to get into here. Mainly, I want to talk about uh, kind of maybe we can narrow it down to three different issues identifying problems, and that may be for a scientist mm -hmm. like yourself impossible. <laughs> but number one, we'll talk about kind of um, – uh, they pip through the shell. I see their beak. I see they're moving. I'm all excited, and I've been told till I'm blue in the face not to help them out, but they die anyway. <laughs> and then they're like second guessing. <laughs> well, if I would have helped them out, my, my, I'll admit my wife kind of falls under that category of you know uh, it's been 24 hours. Should I help it out? And I'm like, you know the drill, Jen. You know that we do not help them out. And then she's the one that kind of came up with the well, if I don't help them out, they're gonna die anyway. <laughs> and so if I help them out, then guess what? They might live and then that's great but if I help them out and they die they may have died anyway so I really have nothing to lose here with helping them out so I want to kind of address that issue first the helping them out and then they you know you, you pick you see them moving you're they're they're you know making noises and then they don't that's all they do they mm -hmm. dip out and they die the second one mm -hmm. would be kind of I've got what appears to be a you know full-grown chick in this egg it just never pipped nothing i cracked it open it appears based on size they died around a day 17 18 it was just the same size that they would have but they didn't hatch out and then maybe one, but number three i've got i can see somewhat of a baby chick in here and it may have died the first seven days or the first 10 days maybe if we can concentrate on those three that'll kind of help folks get an idea of what may have happened uh, and then that kind of we keep it limited in time, and we probably, I think, in those okay. three instances, keep it to the majority of the questions we would get if we were taking callers. Okay. Um, so in terms of um, it pip and do not help it out, which I think is the one that you're probably most um, <laughs> most like, yeah. is um, <laughs> so when the, when the chick's growing and and developing, and the reason for turning is you want to develop those the the, the, the blood membranes to go from top to bottom because they're gonna I, they're gonna utilize the, that, that it's called the cam, uh, but the cam is is going to be basically your respiratory resource for an embryo because it doesn't have fully functional functional lungs yet, and so you want it to go from top to bottom. Um, if you try to help the chick to out too soon, you could run the risk of causing a hemorrhage or causing the chick to bleed mm -hmm. to death, and um, 
So it's helping you that. So no, you don't want to help it out. If it's still in the same spot after 24 hours, chances are all of the blood supply will have been absorbed back into the body or into the body. And it's more of a humidity. It, it, it's potentially more of a humidity problem because the chick is unable to turn. Now, with that being said, sometimes they just die and there's no explainable reason why. If you have a, yep. a large percentage of your eggs set that died just at hatch, then you got to go back and look. And I, when I went going back to when I said put in a put in a digital thermometer, I always recommend a high load because you know, at the end of the day, when you get up in the morning, oh, I had a had a heat spike or oh, I had a power outage, but it mm-hmm. came back, you know, whatever mm-hmm. have you. And that, that therefore you kind of have a, a time frame of 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 events that may happen. But um, but I would say. If the chick's still alive and still moving around after 24 hours, now if it's just got one small pip hole, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's got, if it still has the membrane stuck to it, you could help it out as long as you don't see any vascular or any blood flowing, because more than likely it, it probably has. But if the membranes are stuck to it, um, it's a humidity problem, and that's that's a lot mm-hmm. of times mm-hmm. what I see. And the fact that the chick cannot move in that counterclockwise motion in order to hatch mm-hmm. out because it's got these papery membranes stuck to it to its to its chick down. Um, mm-hmm. I personally, for me, I don't recommend it. I, I, I honestly don't. Have I done it before myself? Yes, early on in my career, and the chick ended up not being a great chick, and it did eventually die. Um, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it, it's a personal preference. I, I I I always 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 tell people do not help the chick out. So that's that's my that's my own personal, you know. Um, but that that, that kind of goes across, I think, industry because uh, every poultry mm-hmm. scientist, poultry vet, everybody we've talked to, they always say that, and for, they, they kind of follow mm-hmm. up with what you said. You know, we totally get. You know, you've got in that soccer mom setting, and the kids, and they have that. You know, well, if I do, I do. If I don't, I don't. And the outcome may be the same. So let's just, you know. <laughs> do that everybody yeah. understands that that way of thinking when it comes down to like the the pet uh chicken aspect of it and the emotions that get involved there so but yeah i've never had anybody and then it comes say down uh, to you have yeah, a very weak chick out. and do i do i want to euthanize it or you know how do i euthanize it i can't right. euthanize it if, yeah and i and i, I get it. I, I do I, i'm a mom and i get it <laughs> I, I truly 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 understand but from a from a naturalistic standpoint the, right. it's it's supposed it's all the conditions are correct Sometimes they just don't hatch out. And, you know, mm-hmm. if the conditions are not correct, sometimes they just don't hatch out. Um, and mm-hmm. I just, I, I always, I always err on the side of don't, don't help. <laughs> yep. Don't help. Perfect. Um, okay. Let's talk about the, um, the chicks that uh, they didn't hatch out. Nope. They didn't pip through the shell, nothing. And then we went to open them up to kind of uh, do that science experiment of when did they die in the incubation process. And, wow, this looks like a totally viable chick. What, what, what happened? You know, very late stage, I guess you'd call it, death. Um, what are some things that uh, we might consider uh, or what, what may have caused that and the things that we could maybe try to prevent that from happening? And again, you know, when you're when you're doing these things and you're doing your breakouts, you have to look at it from an overall percentage. Is it just one chick, mm-hmm. or is it multiple chicks? Mm-hmm. If it's just one out of forty-eight, it's just that one case scenario that it just didn't hatch out. Something wasn't something within that 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 organ system or that shit, that embryo that embryo. Something just wasn't it wasn't in the cards. Um, but sure. you know, if it's an overall global standpoint of I've got say. Fifty percent, twenty-five percent that they just that they that they just stopped growing. 
then you need to go back and look at your, I would say, temperature. And, and you could, and again, it's also looking at the chicks that did hatch out. What did they look like? And look inside the, the hatched egg shells. If you can see, if you can look in the bottom of the shell, the small end of the shell, and you can see where the blood vessels had been, but if they weren't fully formed to the bottom, then that could be a turning issue. If your chicks that have hatched out, they've, everybody's seen black belly buttons, right? The black buttons, whenever they hatch out, that's, a, that's an indication that the temperature was too high. That temperature was driving that embryo to grow faster than what it should. It wasn't able to absorb the yolk sac to, into its body like it was supposed to before it hatched out. And so basically what that scab is is just a, a residual um, of the yolk sac that was not able to be completely internalized. So think of it as like a um, uh, the, the the umbilical cord, umbilical stump on a baby. Um, that it just it, it it'll eventually fall off. The chick can still live, um, but with those you you could have an increase in umbilitis or an infected yolk sac, um, uh, or you know infect the belly button as well, which could potentially affect the the long term health and growth of the chick as well. Um, I always encourage everybody to don't base it on a on a one one case scenario, but look at an look at the big picture overall um, and see. Because if you've got multiple black belly buttons, even even the strings um, when the when the chicks hatch out, or you have those long black strings, that's an indication of, um, of of overheating. If you've got some chicks that are really really yellow and some that are really really white, you probably have a hot spot somewhere because those chicks were driven too quickly to hatch. And they weren't able to utilize the keratin in the um, the keratin in the yolk, which would cause their feathers to be a little more yellow. So if you have a kind of a bleached out white whitish looking chick when it was supposed to be yellow, um, that's another indication. Um, when you break open your eggs uh, and you see embryos, do they, you know are they upside down? Are their beaks underneath their right wing? Um, I'm sorry, under their left. It's always supposed to be their beaks are always supposed to be underneath their right wing. If the chicks are hatched, or if they never hatch and their beaks underneath the left wing, that's called a malposition again, um, and that's an mm-hmm. indication of overheating late and turning. Uh, you could have you could have had a turning issue during the process. If you have um, a lot of early dead, uh, that could be a, your temperature was too low um, in the in the initial stages in the first three to seven days. It was you know where you you thought your incubator was reading at 99.5, but it was actually 97. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, another another one is um, I always like to show my show the pictures to people that I always find the the really crazy ones with the the four legs the two beaks the three eyes mm-hmm. the two heads yeah. the one head two bodies you know all these things so early on if you're in incubation especially like in the first say three days three to five days you know the eye the eye is developing the beak is developing the wings are developing the limbs the head mm-hmm. the brain everything is developing and if something goes wrong in those in that first week. This is where you're going to see your abnormalities, and usually it could, it's probably going to be a temperature or a turning issue. So that's when you got to go back okay. to your checks and balances and look at those types, look at those types of things. It could be a storage issue. Are you storing? Are, are the eggs that you 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 got you you're setting have they been stored at the proper conditions? Seventy percent humidity, you know, sixty-five mm-hmm. to sixty percent. I'm sorry, 70, 70, 70 degrees. Um, around fifty-five to sixty percent humidity is ideal. Um, you know, for long-term storage, I would go even a little bit cooler than that. Um, but it, are your storage conditions okay? How long have the eggs been stored? Uh, for those people that get eggs shipped into them, if they say they buy them off of a, a website somewhere, uh, yeah. 
you can see certain types of abnormalities because of the way that they were handled during transport because the, that, that initial layer of cells gets disrupted. And when the embryo begins to develop, that's when you can see all kinds of, because they, they kind of get just a little bit out of order, and that's when you can see uh, a lot of these other types of abnormalities. So, and if you, um, okay. if you, uh, I know people, some people know what I call sticky chicks when they hatch out and the, the down is matted to them. It kind of looks like somebody put mm-hmm. clear glue all over the top. Um, that's an issue within the first four to eight days um, with turning because they actually do consume the albumin too and then pull it up through a certain tube uh, internally. And if you look in the bottom of the egg and you see that there's residual albumin or you have sticky chicks, um, then that's an indicator that there was a, a problem with turning uh, within the first four to eight, uh, with, between days four and eight as well. Um, and again, if it's just that? one, okay. Um, if it's multiple across the board, then you know you probably had an issue. Okay. If uh, and we'll wrap it up with this. Your suggestion on again that that hobby flock or the backyard flock or the hobbyist. Um, what days would you recommend candling? I mean, we, there's there's charts out there to say what kind of what you can see at each day. But um, whether it be you're teaching the 4-H kids or you're doing it the kind of again not at the commercial level, but kind of uh, uh, a lot of the listeners, what what days do you recommend candling to identify certain things in development? And then we'll wrap it up with that. Um, okay. So depending on what 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 breeds of, of eggs you're getting in? The white eggs are always the one that you can really see through easiest, mm-hmm. uh, and you can really see around. If you know what, you, if you if you're kind of a expert at it, you know what you're an expert. <laughs> you know what you're looking at. Um, I would say, yep. <laughs> I would say around day seven, um, and that's when you're really going to get a full. I was at, I was helping someone the other day, and uh, that we got a great picture. I'll have to send it to you but it was a great picture around day seven and you could see the, the formation of the blood ring and everything um but you can you can candle anytime you want to any any time of day i, I actually had one agent mm-hmm. tell me one time that she had heard that you could blind the chicks after 14 days and you're not going to blind the chicks um at all that's a that's a myth um so you can candle throughout the entire process if if you choose or any time during the process should you choose um once once they begin to externally pit, you're gonna dis- you could potentially disrupt that humidity um, that's that's helping them to maintain that the, the 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 moistness of the membrane so they don't stick. I wouldn't recommend anything past external pit. But in all honesty, if you're just looking to see true true uh, development, if in your brown eggs or your your um, your Americana your your Americana eggs, I would say I, I would wait until maybe day 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 maybe nine or ten. Um, just okay. from that recommendation, but just, yeah, just so if you wanted it's to a just, little harder it, to see around day seven. So day ten, at that point, if we're going to, if we're going to candle once during this incubation, day ten would let us ever, let us know we'd be able to identify everything we didn't know. This one's definitely not developing. This one didn't do anything. It is just uh, nothing. And at, but at day ten, we would be able to say this one's gone, this one's gone, this one's gone, and the rest we're keeping Correct. until they they hatch and we're and we're done. Okay, day ten is a good day. Okay, perfect. That's Correct. what I wanted to. Uh, 
to get to our listeners. Becca, this was a fascinating show. It was awesome. We learned a lot. I love the way that you mentioned 4-H in there along with commercial hatcheries because <laughs> it was it was awesome and, and, and how it can be a lot of the same and then it can be different and how even us at, say, the 4-H level or the soccer mom level or even the experienced kind of hobby farmer or breeder can still learn from, from even at the, the commercial level. So I love the fact that you referred to, say, 4-H and then you said, well, in the commercial industry, this is what they do. I love that. That's what that's what this show is really all about, let, you know, learning from everybody in all aspects. And, and I'll elaborate on that since we have some new listeners, I'm sure, listening in from the poultry site. This past year at IPPE, that was my goal, Becca, and I met you there and we talked about this uh, mm-hmm. over lunch mm-hmm. and where I said, you know, my goal this year uh, and I may do it again that next next year because it was just it was so, it was such a success. I'm going to go through in each one of these buildings, building A, building B, and building C. They all were kind of uh, categorized differently, and uh, it's awesome. And I'm going to go in and for the for 10 minutes, I'm going to go do a Facebook Live, and I'm going to go through and walk through and identify some some equipment or this, that, or the other. And mm-hmm. I am going to show the folks how how because so many people think in the backyard industry or hobby well big ag doesn't affect me it doesn't affect my but this is why i'm doing this and so Mm -hmm. this past year at ippe for the first 10 minutes of my facebook live in every building i went through and showed backyarders and hobbyists how big ag and this commercial industry how it's in their backyard from the pelleted feed they're using and these machines that are making the pelleted feed and bagging it all the way to the nutrition and the vitamin companies that provide the mix for the pellets and the feed to uh um, to 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 the processing building where I'm like, look, if you eat nuggets, if you eat, if you go out to any mm-hmm. restaurant on the planet and are eating chicken as an entree, here's this is how it affects you. And then of course from the the oh well it still doesn't affect me. But if you order birds from Ideal Poultry or from Cackle or from Metzer, you're, they're using incubators found at the IPPE. Um, and and I went through you know and showing these. Oh well well I still I it just, it still doesn't affect me. Well tell me about the breeds in your backyard. Well I have Isa Browns right. I have Bowman's Brown. Well, you do realize mm-hmm. that those birds right mm-hmm. there were developed by, you know, you've got um, – so like these were you developed got, by this got big got genetics Bowman's. company. Et cetera, everything. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, it was a great, and people love that to actually be able to see because everybody just kind of shuns that. And I'm like, no, here, here's how much mm-hmm. big industry is in your backyard. Even if you just have six chickens you bought at the tractor supply, who got them from, you know, Cackle or Ideal, who got them from, and who are using the hatcheries, and now the feed you're buying yep. every week, it's it's in your backyard. Including you the like chicken it or, delight or not. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's, exactly. It's, that was my goal last year at IPP&E to try to link everything together and show people that, no, you, there's no way if you're going to raise backyard chickens in your backyard that you can be immune from the science and how, and how uh, you can do it due to this successful science we have, say, in, in Big yeah. Ag. So uh, that was great. But thank you so much. But I do love the fact that you hey, referred to 4-H and you're in, 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 in the big commercial industry during the show, and I love that. So thank you but yeah. very much for joining thank us. For I will continue me. to send lots of questions via text and keep sending those crazy <laughs> pictures of two-headed chickens to me because that's always fascinating <laughs> to me because then I can share it with, with my crowd as well. So that was awesome. You were sure. a great guest. And uh, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next time. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me, Andy. (laughs) Thank you so much. 
All right, you've been listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds, and this was identifying problems with the incubation and hatching with uh, our poultry research uh, specialist, Becca uh, Wasaki uh, of uh, NC State, uh, and it was a great show. Hopefully you learned a lot. We'll be back. Let me look at my calendar here. It looks like we try to broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and it looks like uh, next uh, Thursday is the fourth Thursday of the month, so I'll try to have another special guest here for you next Thursday. But normally our routine is the first and third Thursday. We have uh, poultry scientist Dr. McCray come on out of Auburn University uh, on the ninth, the second, or excuse me, on the second Thursday of every month. We have poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski out of UC Davis in California, and then we allow the fourth, and if there's a fifth, like this month, there it looks like there's a fifth Thursday, then the fourth and fifth Thursday, you just never know what you're going to expect here on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. So thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week right here on Blog Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.